Our ushers are passing out note sheets and pencils. If you need a Bible, please raise your hand. And they would be happy to provide one for you. Before we begin, um, I want to read a passage of Scripture for you out of 2 Timothy chapter 4. It's a passage that resounded throughout this week to uh, Paul and Matt, Sean and myself. Apostle Paul writes to his protege Timothy and says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by His appearing and His kingdom, preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But have it, having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure the suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. We have been so blessed this past week and we want to thank you um, as elders, that you afforded us the opportunity to go to the Shepherds Conference in Southern California at Pastor John MacArthur's church, Grace Community Church. And uh, this theme, or the theme this year, uh, was faithfulness. Pastor John just last month celebrated his 50th year of continual ministry at Grace Community. For 50 years, he has preached and exposited the Word and encouraged the body of saints throughout the world uh, to stay fast to the calling that I just described to you in 2 Timothy chapter 4. And so each of the uh, special speakers that came, came to preach on faithfulness. Each was given a slightly different perspective of faithfulness. And so we heard sermons about faithfulness in evangelism, faithfulness in preaching, faithfulness in perseverance, uh, faithfulness in just about everything you can think of. And it was an amazing time for us to come together and to be encouraged and to be challenged by the Word. We want the Word to be so central to everything that we do here at First Family Church. It is a great, great gift that God allows us to hear preaching on a regular basis from the Scripture. And we as preachers need it too. So to be able to hear guys like Vody Bauckham and Ligon Duncan and Al Moeller and these wonderful men of God who are faithful and uh, so wise and intelligent and experienced come and give the Word of God to us I haven't been able to wait to get into this pulpit since I've heard so much good preaching. And so I'm grateful to be here with you this morning. And thank you so much for allowing us to go to this conference and to be edified and to grow and to learn. And uh, we, we pray that the ministry of God's Word would continually be the focus of what we do at, at our church as we grow in Him. Uh, we didn't go to a whole bunch of technical seminars. They didn't bring in people from the business community to teach us how to be more strategic or cast vision. Literally. 12 excellent sermons. Preaching, preaching, preaching. Bookended by singing and appraising and praying together. It was an amazing conference. It was like church for a week. And so uh, we're grateful to have church now on the Lord's Day, which is the day that He has determined that we should draw together as brothers and sisters and go to the Word together and allow the Holy Spirit to work through His servants to exposit for us and to illuminate for us the things that we need to be equipped so we might do the work of the ministry that He's called us to. So you've got your Bibles, and I hope that you're open to Galatians chapter 6. We have been working verse by verse through this uh, wonderful book that Paul has uh, given to the church of Galatia, and by extension, our church here. And so today we're going to be looking at verses 6 through 10 in Galatians 
chapter 6. <laughs> Let the one who is taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. The agricultural metaphor from chapter 5 continues as chapter 6 unfolds. In order to help the people of Galatia understand how to live according to the grace that they have received, Paul has talked about bearing good spiritual fruit by walking in step with the leaning of the Holy Spirit. He challenges the Galatians to show love to one another by bearing each other's burdens, stressing the importance of gently correcting a brother or sister who has fallen into sin. And then Paul returns to the fruit-bearing word picture by addressing the fact that we cannot expect to reap a useful harvest if our lives are spent sowing in the wrong ways. This farming illustration was well known before Paul used it here in Galatians 6. And it has been applied to various areas of the lives of believers over the centuries. Proverbs 22.8 says, Whoever sows injustice will reap calamity, and the rod of his fury will fail. King Solomon writes this proverb to show that there are reasonable consequences to our actions, especially for those who are in leadership in this particular verse, when you break the rules, when you ignore God's instruction, your choices are going to come back to haunt you eventually. They are going to produce in you a fruit that you do not want. That doesn't always seem to be the case, does it? There are often times in life when someone clearly breaks God's law, when someone sows injustice in their life, and yet it seems that as they harvest they, they, what they harvest and what they reap doesn't quite match the disobedient actions that they have sown. Instead of reaping calamity, it feels as though they reap benefits that they do not deserve. The shady employee breaks company policy and still somehow gets the promotion. The couple treats their children badly and continues to be blessed with fertility, while another godly couple cannot seem to conceive. It, it doesn't seem like justice always prevails in the life of sinners. But this proverb is especially meaningful to the Hebrew people who believe that there is a justice that extends beyond the courts of men. Because there is a sovereign God who reigns on high and sees the actions of every man perfectly, and because this all-knowing God is also all-powerful and rules the universe with complete authority, there is no wickedness that will escape His perfect judgment. Even if a person seems to get away with sin here on earth, a God of mercy and truth will eventually judge that individual and make things right. The proverb shows up again in Scripture. Job chapter 4, verse 8. As I have seen those who plow iniquity and sow trouble reap the same. In this passage, Job's quote-unquote friend, Eliphaz, used this proverb against his buddy. 
Job was a man of righteousness, a, a good follower of the Lord, and God had blessed his life with abundance. He had sown righteousness and he reaped many blessings and rewards from that. But things had changed. Job's life was suddenly falling apart all around him. He had lost almost everything. And his friends came to sit with him in silent mourning for a time. But eventually they began to turn on Job. They began to suggest that perhaps Job was now reaping the consequences of some hidden sin that had not been exposed before. And so they urged him to confess, to bring it out into the open and just let them know what he had done that was so wrong that would cause God to take all these blessings away. So there's a good truth used in the wrong way, isn't it? Eliphaz was discouraging a man that needed encouragement, a man who had stood, stood strong in God's Word and did not deserve to be questioned the way that Eliphaz was questioning him. Hosea 10.12 says, Sow for yourselves righteousness. Reap steadfast love. Break up the fallow ground. For it is the time to seek the Lord that He may come and rain righteousness upon you. Here we see the prophet Hosea use the illustration in a positive sense. When someone makes investments in righteousness by living in holy ways, listening to God's command and responding obediently, and God rewards that faithfulness with a harvest of steadfast love. Hosea goes on to indict Israel for doing exactly the opposite. They had sown iniquity. They were reaping injustice. They were feasting upon the fruit of lies. And so if they continue to reap wrong things, the prophet warns, then eventually they will reap the destructive judgment of God who is not negligent in His role as judge. And so to summarize this idea of the reaping and the sowing and this proverb that has been passed on and used through the generations of faithful followers of the Lord, there is order and there is justice to God's creation. Like springs from like. So if the life that you are living today is full of sin and rebellion and lovelessness, then don't expect the outcome of your life to be peace and tranquility and satisfaction. Just as a bad tree does not bear good fruit, so too does bad seed eventually germinate and bring forth bad crops. That is the essence of the metaphor the Apostle Paul is working with here in Galatians chapter 6. Now I want to caution you as you hear this phrase thrown about from time to time. More than a few preachers have grabbed a hold of this idea of reaping and sowing and have tried to put it to use in ways that it was never intended to be used by God. This proverb is not a secret formula for reaping exactly what you want to get from God. It's not like some spiritual almanac that tells you, if this is what you want from God, just do these things and He has to give it to you. There are those who would misuse and abuse this principle to try to convince others that our prayers are seeds. Seeds that we sow in order to reap the harvest of blessings from God. If I pray just the right way, if I use just the right words, and if I can pray with just the right amount of faith, then God won't have any choice but to keep His promise and give me what I ask for. You ever heard that sermon before? You ever heard people suggest that before? Why is this misleading doctrine appealing to men? Because we like to think that there are ways that we can work the system. We like to think that if we're just clever enough, or just faithful enough, 
then destiny does not have to be out of our hands. We don't have to really bow to the will of God because we can create our own will by simply sowing the right seeds of faith. This mishandling of God's Word ignores God's sovereignty and puts man in the position of control. What an intoxicating lie to humanity that we could go through what seemed to be religious and righteous means and in doing so control God and, and, and harness His power for our own will. This idea that praying the right secret words we can speak our will into existence as if we had the power of God who alone can speak things into existence. It is intoxicating in the way that it appeals to our personal pride and our natural desire to rebel against God. It is also blasphemy in that it threatens to put man, a created thing, in charge of God, the one true creator. And let's sit and really think about what if, what if that doctrine was true? What if people could just say the right things and pray with the right amount of belief that they could get it and they would actually get it from the Lord, that God would have, have to give it to them, that He would be beholden to their special prayers. Do you really want to live in a world where any fallible, short-sighted person can force God to give Him what they want just by praying the right way and sowing the right seeds? That sounds like a world of chaos and destruction to me. Imagine... the. the the unrest that would fill this world if man could just bypass the will of God by following a simple formula like that. In just a few verses, we're going to see that God will not be deceived. He will also not be manipulated. The, the proverb is not a loophole to ensure our will. It is a reminder that God sits on the throne and that His will will surely, surely be done. All that God commands must be respected because no sin is going to go unpunished. Every blow that lands on a defenseless child in anger, every lie uttered by the mouth of man, every act of thievery and hatred and impurity, at the conclusion of this life, we will each stand before the judgment seat of God and every sin that we have committed before God will be accounted for and will be punished justly, either upon us or upon Jesus Christ, who loved us so deeply that He was willing to come down and live a perfect life and become that absolutely pure sacrifice that He might give His own life and stand in our place so that every wicked thing that we had ever done might be punished rightly upon His shoulders. That is the, the substitutional sacrifice that really defines our place with the Lord God, that He has atoned for our sins and made us pure with the righteousness of Christ that we might be able to have a peaceful and right relationship with Him. So if this is not God's secret recipe for prosperity, then what is it? What does this metaphor of reaping and sowing refer to? I think it's best if we just allow the text to, to speak for itself. We won't start with verse 6 because at first glance, verse 6 doesn't seem to fit into the verses that are right before it or the verses that come right after it. Look at it again. Galatians 6.6 6 says, Let the one who is taught the Word share all good things with the one who teaches. It kind of almost feels like 
the, the verses around it are a parenthesis and it just sort of got stuck in the wrong place. What is that doing there? It's a random piece of instruction in which Paul tells the Galatians that they need to make sure to take care of the needs of people who teach them God's Word. That doesn't exactly flow from the idea of biblical correction that preceded it. It's not immediately clear how it's connecting to this idea of reaping and sowing. So let's trust that verse 6 will make more sense after we look a little bit more closely at verses 7 and 8. We'll double back to verse 6 after we've gotten a handle on this metaphor and what it is designed to teach us. So look at 7 again. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he also will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows from the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. What you reap, that too you will sow. There is some preparation there, isn't there? And that preparation results in an inevitable product. But contrary to the prosperity gospel interpretation of Galatians 6, that inevitable product, that predictable harvest, does not have to do with the kinds of blessings that we experience here on earth. Rather, it has everything to do with the life to come. This isn't sow a little obedience, reap a little blessing. Or sow a little rebellion, reap a little jail time. While the fruits of the Spirit from the end of chapter 5 are realities that we experience now, when we trust the leading of the third person of the Trinity, that's true, we get blessings from the fruit of the Spirit. That's not exactly how these particular verses are framed. According to verse 8, the harvest time in this metaphor specifically describes the ultimate final state of the one who has sowed. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. There are only two final destinations. There are only two harvest possibilities here. Those who sow from the Spirit will reap the harvest of eternal life. And what a wonderful harvest this is. Think about the amazing gift that has been promised to those who trust in the Lord God. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. John 11, verses 25 and 26, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in Me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in Me shall never die. But friends, eternal life describes something so much more than quantity of life. It refers to a quality of life that we can barely even imagine from our vantage point here on earth. The greatest element of eternal life is being near to the one who gives that life. When we, when we enter into that eternal life, that life that is not bound by time, we won't have to suffer the temptations of sin any longer. We won't have to deal with the, the shortcomings of the flesh. Everything that is broken or lacking in you will be fulfilled in your resurrection. We will not go without food. We will not have to shed tears of remorse and shame and sadness for our rebellious hearts. We will be glorified, living in a place of peace. We will be unified with one another, but more importantly, we will be unified with our Savior. John 17.3 And this is eternal life, 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. This word for know doesn't just mean know of. It means that they will know you personally, that that relationship will be a face-to-face interaction. Heaven is heaven because Christ is there. And so we look forward to this glorification because eternal life means dwelling alongside God and walking with Him in many of the same ways that Adam walked with God in the garden. Eternal life is a wonderful destination. And it is my hope and prayer that every one of us will reap that harvest one day. Those who sow of the Spirit will reap the harvest of eternal life, but not all will sow of the Spirit. Those who sow of the flesh will reap a different kind of harvest, a harvest of corruption. This word for corruption here is a term that is not referring to a degraded state of life. It points toward an ever-degrading state of death. It is the word that is used to describe a corpse that has been buried in a tomb and is undergoing the process of decomposition. That degrading life is not something that happens instantly and is over. It's not saying that all there is to death for a sinner is the loss of their earthly bodies. The soul lives on and is punished eternally in hell by the destructive forces of judgment. Daniel 12.2 says, And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Matthew 25.46 And he's speaking of the wicked here. And the wicked will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. This is a serious distinction. Eternal life is drastically and radically different than eternal death. But they share this in common. They do not end. They last forever. Revelation 20.15 And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. In verse 10 of Revelation 20, we're told that the lake of fire burns not just for a short time, but forever and ever. This ultimate reality is a terrible judgment. This destruction is an everlasting decay. It is not a, an end of life that leads to annihilation and, and, a, and a ceasing of our existence. It leads to a punishment that endures. And so this idea of reaping and sowing is not just talking about your quality of life here on earth. It is a talking about our, our eternal state. It's talking about where we will spend the rest of our existence when our time here on earth is done. Our sowing has some definite connection to our ultimate resting place. And so we should rightly be very intent to know what it means to sow. Understanding this concept in context, Paul has already declared to us in his letter that there is no amount of obedience that can save us, right? Good deeds and religious works are not the seeds that will yield the crop of eternal life. Galatians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. For through the Spirit... By faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Now we've seen over the course of our study in Galatians that this reference to circumcision 
is really a reference to the idea of keeping the law. It's a reference to thinking that in order to be saved, you must impress the Lord God with your righteousness by keeping the law to some sufficient degree. Paul's made it very clear to the Galatians, don't believe that lie. Your salvation is not Jesus plus anything. Your salvation is faith in Christ alone through the grace that He gives to you alone. Obeying the law doesn't save, and so sowing good behavior doesn't guarantee you'll reap salvation. What is that essential element that saves a person? Not works, but faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in His perfect work. Faith in His better sacrifice. Faith in His perfect blood that washes all of our sins away. Faith that His grace is enough for us. So this idea, this idea of reaping and sowing is not just a veiled works salvation. Paul is not going back and then undoing all that detailed theological work that he has done to help us rightly understand justification. He's not coming back after all of that work to say, yeah, it's all about Jesus, it's all about Jesus. He's not now saying, you want to make it to heaven? Put on your overalls, grab a shovel. we got some hard work to do if we're going to earn our way there. No, that's not what he's saying here. To sow unto salvation is to sow faith. Faith in Jesus Christ and the work that is His alone. But notice again what Galatians 5, 6 says. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Faith is going to do something. It's going to have an effect in you. When you have true faith in the Lord God, and He justifies you and makes you right, when He pulls you out of your sinful deadness, and breathes life into you, there will be a work of love in your life. True faith in Jesus Christ will absolutely manifest itself in the life of the believer as he bears the fruit of the Spirit that we've been looking at for the past four weeks. Now, we won't be able to bear that fruit perfectly, but we will be able to bear that fruit regularly. When there is true faith in Christ, He will, without exception, work in your life to produce love, to produce good works that flow out of a heart of love. So to sow to the flesh means to display a serious lack of faith in Jesus Christ by living out decisions that are regularly serving our natural sinful desires. Remember Paul's earlier warning in Galatians chapter 5, verse 19. He says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you as I warned you before that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So Paul is once again giving us to reason, a reason to doubt this idea that is so common in the world today, this idea of the carnal Christian. Have you heard that phrase before? The carnal Christian. It's the idea that someone can be saved, they can put their faith in Jesus Christ, but then they can go through huge periods of their life just completely ignoring Jesus. They said a prayer, they spent some time in church, but then at some point or other, something happened, maybe a tragic situation in their life, 
maybe a change of location made them change churches and they just never got settled in somewhere else. Or maybe they just got bored with the things of God. And so they have not been living in the Lord. And some people are apt to call them carnal Christians. This is a doctrine that is so dangerous, brothers and sisters. Because it creates in an enemy of God a false sense that they are safe and sound in His kingdom when in reality they are still on the wrong side of the battle line. Those who do not walk in the Spirit, when we don't see fruit, and don't get me wrong in this church, repentance is a fruit, isn't it? We will have always brothers and sisters with us who struggle against sin. Every one of us in this room struggles against sin. Remember, we will show the fruits of the Spirit, not perfectly, but regularly. When that fruit begins to disappear, and you no longer see Christ at the center of someone's life, if you see them living completely independent of God, and that goes on for quite some time, we are right to pray that they will repent and return to what they know, but we must eventually come to a point in time where we start to see that person not as a regenerate person who is stronger than the Holy Spirit that God put in them to grieve their hearts when they sin, but rather that person perhaps is not even a believer. That perhaps that profession of faith that they made at the beginning didn't truly signify a surrendered heart to Christ. So this idea of a carnal Christian is dangerous because it makes people believe, oh, I'm, I'm still a believer. I'm just doing my own thing for a time. I'm just... I'm just running away from the Lord now. Eventually I'll come back to Him. But where is the broken heart? Where is the respect for the, the life that was given for them on the cross at Calvary? Would it be more dangerous to assume they are saved and backslidden and that God's just going to bring them back eventually? Or would it be more dangerous to act with concern for their salvation and urge them on to true faith? It would appear that that sowing nothing is not an option here. You're either sowing things of the Spirit or you're sowing to the flesh, right? So we must be very cautious about this idea, this, this idea that there are carnal Christians and we just, we just got to have faith that they're going to come back to the Lord. No, we need to love them enough to do what Paul just preached about in the, in the verses prior, that we are to gently and lovingly correct a brother who has fallen into sin because if they're not bearing the fruits of repentance... And that could be an indication that, that they never really give their lives to the Lord. Where is the Spirit in their life? Sowing, is not, uh, sowing nothing is not an option here. There is no fallow life. We are all farmers of one sort or another. In fact, sowing seeds to the flesh is absolutely natural to us. We don't even have to try to do it. It just flows out of us. We are going to live selfishly and apart from the law of God without any prompting, without any broken society teaching us how to do it. We know from the heart how to say no to the Lord. That's a sad truth. If you are neglecting the things of the Spirit, you are, by default, sowing to the flesh. And it is here that Paul's shocking declaration needs to be considered in verse 7. Where he says in very stern words, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows that he also will reap. Friends, it would be foolish. But beyond that, it would be more than foolish, it would be insulting to think that we could live a life that is defined by wretched behavior, that we could live life sowing those kind of bankrupt values and ideas that 
Galatians 5.19-21 through 21 describes lives that so plainly display an utter lack of faith in the work of Jesus Christ and expect to not see the eventual consequences of those choices. God will not be mocked. If I call myself His child and I treat Him like a consultant, I am sowing seeds of condemnation while expecting a harvest of faithfulness. God will not be mocked. You can pull off that kind of stuff on mortal man. You can pull off that kind of deception on your elders. But not one shred of deception will make its way past the gates of heaven and threaten the integrity of God's perfect country. God knows the heart. So we should be ultimately concerned with the heart. I'm reminded of a man that we all know well. His name is Judas. Judas Iscariot seemed like such a godly man. He seemed like one who was willing to give up everything to follow Jesus. And he did that for three years. Left his life behind and walked with the Son of God. He seemed like one who was filled with the Spirit. He was sent out two by two with the rest of the disciples on that first missionary journey described in Matthew chapter 10. He did miracles. He cast out demons. He did amazing things for the work of God. And so if you just looked at the work, you might see somebody who was religious, who was faithful, who was righteous. But do you remember in John 12, shortly before Jesus went to the cross, that a humble woman came and gave Jesus a lavish gift. She came with a very expensive oil. She bowed at His feet and she anointed His feet with oil. One of the disciples who saw this scene grew angry about it. He argued that that oil that she poured out so generously all over the feet of Jesus was so expensive it could have been sold for a year's wages. And that that money could have been put into the money pot and used to feed the poor and clothe the cold. But Scripture pulls back the curtain and shows us this man's heart. John 12, verses 4-6 through says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money back, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Friends, nobody knew about that at the time. Everybody thought Judas was an upstanding guy. Everything on the outside said righteous man. But he was sowing seeds of the flesh when no one was looking. He was pleasing the flesh when people weren't paying attention to him. For him it was about the actions. And he cared about actions that would put money in his pockets rather than cared about actions that would reflect a heart surrendered to God. Friends, God sees. God knows. God judges rightly. I remember as a young man learning about Jesus in Awana. And I remember my view of God changing seriously when somebody taught me that Jesus could see my thoughts. I thought from that, before then, I thought God was real. I thought He knew a lot. I thought He was very strong. 
But when somebody said, God can see into the thoughts of your heart, I feared the Lord. I began to realize that there was no hiding place away from Him. I began to realize that He knew the inside and out of who I was. And I was a per- everybody says I was a perfect child. I was a sneaky child. <laughs> I was good at not getting caught at the bad things that I did. And so when somebody taught me about this God who looks into my heart and sees who I am, I couldn't barely breathe. I was suddenly nervous. And I suddenly began to take my sin a lot more seriously. Because this God who everyone taught me was good and true saw who I really was. But thankfully, they, be, they kept on teaching me about this God. And they taught me that though this God knows my broken and wretched heart, though He knows I'm not always honest to mommy, though He knows that I steal stuff sometimes and that I get in trouble but I'm really good at hiding, He knows me and He wants to overcome that sin in me. That He loves me. Not because I am perfect before Him, but because He just chooses to love. Because God is love. What a beautiful change in the heart of an eight-year-old child. And that really led me to a a trust in Jesus Christ, that he would love me even though I was not a good boy like everybody thought I was. God sees. God knows. God judges rightly. And thank God Almighty, he forgives the repentant. You might be in your seat right now looking at the door because you've been sowing decay. You've been sowing destruction. But friend, there is still time for God to plow up the faulty crops and to sow new ones. God does not require you to undo your sinful ways with a, with a harvest of good works, with a, a new dedication to all the right things, and once you've fulfilled those things, you've proved yourself, He'll say, okay, you're good enough now. You belong to me. God requires a humble and repentant heart that simply says, God, because of what you have shown me, I know what I am now. I'm a sinner. And I also know that apart from your grace, I'm going to stay a sinner forever unless you intervene. When we know the power of the cross and the work that Jesus Christ did to redeem those who are His, then there is no track record that cannot be expunged. There is no history of disobedience and rebelliousness that cannot be turned around. Today can be the day for salvation for someone who though they have sown destruction their whole lives, sees through Jesus today that they need something different. And that they can only get that something different through the Son of God. Perfect, pure, loving, and merciful. Trust Him. I hope that we see here today that, that this passage, where Paul makes it very clear to us, that you can't just say you're a Christian but live however you want to live. If you really trust the Lord God, it's going gonna, it's gonna to produce fruit in you. You're going to walk in ways where you're sowing righteousness instead of sowing destruction. It shows us that Jesus cannot just accomplish half of His will in the life of a human being. He's not just mostly good. Jesus is going to accomplish His will in us. And what is His will in us? It is not just to save us from hell, but it is to give us life. It is to make us new and, and, and grow things in us that will make us different than what we were before. Jesus doesn't just justify us. Jesus sanctifies us, friends. He will do it. It will be accomplished in us. And it is accomplished in us every day that we live in faith in God to the day we're taken out of this world. 
to the day He chooses to glorify us and bring us home. Sanctification is not optional. Listen to these verses. 1 Corinthians 6.11 And such were some of you. He just listed off heinous sins, terrible sins, and said, people who do these things are not going to get into heaven. And then Paul says in verse 11, And such were some of you. But you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Were sanctified is interestingly in the past tense there. We often think of sanctification as this progressive thing, and rightfully so, because God continues to sanctify us as we live and learn, as we mature, and as we put aside childish things and become more like Christ. But there is also a finished concept within this sanctification, that He is sanctifying us, but He has sanctified us by the blood of the Lamb. That we stand before Him righteous now because of Christ's righteousness which He has given to us and put in our account. Hebrews 2.11 says, for he, who for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why He is not ashamed to call them brothers. Jesus calls you brother and He sanctifies you so that you have a right to be in the family. God's not ashamed of you, believer. Even if you're stumbling and scrambling to be holy, even if you have fought addictions and you've tried to get rid of habits and you keep falling back into them, but you are repentant and you continue to trust in Him, He's not ashamed to call you brother. Do not give up that fight of sanctification. Continue to walk with the Lord and allow Him to carry you through this difficulty that you're experiencing. So Galatians 6 does not apply the reaping and sowing concept to justification. It doesn't say reap good deeds, you'll be justified and you'll get eternal life. Rather, he applies it to sanctification, to the evidence of a justified life. If your life never bears the evidence of sanctification, then that's a good indicator that the Holy Spirit may not be present there. If the Holy Spirit is not present, there is no true salvation and heaven has no room for a hardened heart like that. So friends, consider what Paul is telling us here. Especially consider it. If, if in your human intelligence, if in your thinking you have somehow made room for sin in your life, you have said, I can follow the Lord God, but still be king of myself. I can follow Jesus Christ and go to church, but I can still have this piece of the pie for me. If you have lived that way, then think about what Jesus is teaching you through Paul right now. Think about the fact that God doesn't want to just save part of you. He's not just worried about the end of your life. Jesus cares about you right now in the seat in which you sit. And He wants to breathe life into what you are. Don't allow the concepts of salvation that this world has invented for itself, these concepts of salvation that fall so short of what God has prepared for His people, don't let it to confuse you. Don't let it convince you that you can somehow mock God by living your own life and not being repentant and just expect to have heaven one day when this life is over. Realize that those who have been justified will, by necessity, produce good fruit in their life. It won't be perfect, but it will be regular. It will be consistent. And some of that fruit might be repentance and a broken heart over sin, but that is a beautiful fruit as well, friends. Verses 9 and 10. 
explain how Paul expects believers to sow this spirit. How do we sow this spirit? Verse 9, And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Let us sow the specific seeds that produce spiritual fruit by determining to do good to all, and especially to those who we would call brother or sister in Christ. Our love increases. Guess what? Our sanctification increases as well. Do good to everyone. Why do we do good to everyone? We do good to everyone not because they might do good back to us. Not because we want to impress them in such a way that we win them over. That's part of it, but we do good to people for one reason, and it's because they bear the image of God. And we love God. The worst sinner you've ever met was made in the image of God. That's hard to believe. But some of you have met some pretty sinful people. Some of us have been pretty sinful people. But every human being bears the image of God. And though most of us do not bear it particularly well, that comes with it a sense of honor and reverence. That when we do good to others, we are doing good to the image of God. We are blessing them by being loving and kind and gentle and peaceful, by having self-control in our interactions with them. When we bear the fruit of the Spirit, when we love people, we are doing a great service to the image of God. So do good to everyone. We try to do that at First Family Church. We have a food pantry that reaches out to people in our neighborhood. People we don't know can come and be blessed by us. We do that at, at, at the Kids Club, at Sutter Elementary Church. But we do it not just in specific ministries, but in our lives which are lived in ministry. With our neighbors, and with our coworkers, with our family members, with our spouse, with our kids. We do good to others. But there is a special sense in which those who have experienced and tasted the same grace that we have deserve even more from us. That we should especially do good to those who are of the household of faith. God has done more than just released us from our prison. He has dragged us across the battle line and brought us onto His side. Now we not only bear arms for Him, but we also bear the name of Christ. As Christian, we are brothers and sisters in one family. And so let us love one another, especially those who bear the name of a believer. Let us look out for one another, as Paul taught us to do in the verses we studied last week. Don't forget, friends, that the greatest way you can love someone is by bringing them to Jesus Christ. Bring them to the cross. If they're not a believer, they need to know Him. They need to understand what lies ahead, the peril that is before them if they don't have Christ. They need to see the great love with which He saves His people. They need to see that they don't have to earn their way there, that Christ has done the good work. They need to see that God can change even a wretch like them. So bring them to Jesus. Bring your friends who love the Lord to Jesus. When you see a brother or sister discouraged, where do they need to go? They need to go to Christ. They need to be reminded of this wonderful, beautiful sanctification that God grows in them. They need to, to remember that God is not finished, that He is doing a good work, and the one who began the good work in them will carry it out to completion. So, so let us do good to those outside of the church, and especially to those inside of the church. Anyone, 
We want to double back for a minute. What, is that role, uh, what role does that verse that we skipped play in all this? Verse 6, look at it again. The Lord puts teachers into our lives who help us sow good seeds. That helps us to live out this fruitfulness that was just described in the chapter prior, right? God has given you a minister. He's given you a team of ministers. You have elders here that love you and pray for you regularly. Don't walk away from that gift. They are helpers for you in sowing righteousness. And those who are faithful in that job deserve to be supported. And every time we give to the church, we're supporting the work of the ministries that are serving here. So Paul is encouraging that appreciation, that gratefulness that we all need to be shepherded. We all need that accountability. And believe me, as Paul and Matt and Sean and I went down south today, we were ministered to as well because we are men like you and we need shepherding too. And so we need to respect and honor these who have done such a wonderful work of teaching us the word and helping us to not fall off of the path, to understand these scriptures verse by verse so that we can live them out and apply them in our lives. So let us do good as a means of sowing the seeds of the Spirit-filled life. And especially let us do good to those who are now our brothers and sisters by faith. Our one Father is pleased as we act as a family bound together by love and by grace. Bow your heads with me as we close in a word of prayer and our worship band comes up. God, we thank you for the amazing and wonderful blessing of knowing you, being known by you. Father, we, uh, we don't have any delusions here of thinking that we can be perfectly fruitful. And we're so relieved to know that that's not a prerequisite for heaven. God, we can reap a harvest that we don't deserve because you have overcome our sin on the cross. But Lord God, let us not deceive ourselves and think that one who has been won to the truth can afford to ignore the very thing that he's counting on for salvation. God, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for your resurrection. We thank you for your perfect blood spilled for us. And I pray, God, that that would not only secure our salvation, Lord, that we would recognize that we are safe in your hands, but that it would also fuel our love for one another, that we would bear good fruits in such a way, Lord, that people would see how Christ loves them by watching us take care of our brothers and sisters, and even those in the community who do not yet know you. God, continue to preach through your, your men today as they fill your pulpits. Help them to see truth clearly and to speak it courageously. We love you and thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.